Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. So with Robbie, when we started practicing at Nashville, to be honest with you, after like our second run, like I knew it was going to work with him. In anything that's competitive, where you kind of rest on your laurels, you don't try to get better, you don't keep studying, you don't keep trying to make your car faster, you don't try to get better as a driver, you don't try to make better pit. As soon as you start doing any of that stuff, I mean, you're you're gone. It was um, uh, definitely the most um, exciting race of my life. Um, not a win bigger, never had a win bigger than that ever, um, no matter what any of them were. Dale Jr. and I moved up together. He won Texas, and I think he won an all-star race the week before. And um, I felt definitely a little urgency to win. 
today NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past as today we don't have any future hello everyone I'm Steve Wade and my name is Rick Houston and welcome to the same vault podcast presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway America's racing show place and a track that really does care about NASCAR history. And of course, we are now a part of the Daily Downforce Network. Now, I want to start out this week with a big thank you to our Scene Vault podcast super fan, Chris Roop, who tweeted me yesterday about a Bristol ticket stub that he had seen on eBay. Now, this wasn't just any old Bristol run-of-the-mill ticket stub. How's that? How's that, Rick? It was from the tracks, July 20th, 1969 Grand National event, which was won by David Pearson with relief help from Richard Petty, huh. of all people. Okay. Now, after five years of doing this podcast with me, please tell me that you recognize that date, July 20th, 1969. Well, Rick, I'll be honest with you. After five years of doing this podcast with you, I do not. <laughs> no, I do. I do. I know what it is. It has something to do with space trouble, rocket launching, something like that. Well, actually, it has more to do with landing. Okay. <laughs> All right. July 20th, 1969. That was the date that Apollo 11 landed on the surface of the moon. As soon as I saw Chris's tweet, I logged on to eBay just as fast as I possibly could, and I snagged that sucker. So that is now on its way, but I'm still on the hunt for a Bristol race program from that day. And Steve, our friend N.B. Arnold actually has one. Does he really? Yes, but that's not one that I'm ever going to try to pry out of his possession. Steve, he was actually at that race as a child with his family, and he bought the program right. that day. How about that? So that's obviously a keepsake that the NB needs to hold on to as long as possible. So listeners, if you have a Bristol race program from July 20th, 1969, and you're willing to part with it, or if you see one available anywhere, let me know. Now, with that out of the way, I've got a bone to pick with you personally. Okay. Uh-oh. You held out on me again. And you had a meeting this week at the NASCAR Hall of Fame to nominate people for the Pioneer ballot for next year's induction class. And again, you did not consult and ask me so I could tell you who you needed to put on your nomination form. I do not need to consult you about that. I know who you want to be on that <laughs> nomination form. Okay. <laughs> well, Steve, in all seriousness, what is the process like? Well, they gathered the voters together in a, in a meeting room at the uh, NASCAR building in downtown Charlotte, along with a video clip of the other voters who could not attend that particular meeting. They explained the rules to us. One of the rules is that the candidate's career had to start before 1964. Any driver whose career started after 64 was not eligible for the Pioneer class. And then they put up on the screen all the previous nominees. They open up the floor to the voters to discuss any nominees they want to do. And we all we did that for the greater part of an hour. And when that was over, we each received our ballot. And we voted, sealed it, 
and handed it back. And that's the process. Well, I noticed you did post a picture on Facebook about mm-hmm. that and yeah. being there at the meeting and everything. And I couldn't help but laugh. But as soon as you posted that, you got all kinds of comments on that photo of who they thought right. should be. Not. <laughs> right. So I you weren't that. at a loss. You were no. not at a loss for help on that matter. <laughs> <laughs> you got to expect that, Rick. I mean, fans have their favorites. Fans will always have their own personal nominees for the Hall of Fame. And that's all well and good. Well, I'm just going to go ahead and ask. Going to let us know who you nominated? Rick, I can't do that. Them's the rules, Rick. Those are the rules. I've got to be quiet. Oh, see, what that tells me is it was not my guy. Okay. Don't be so sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, Steve, honestly, I really respect the fact that you're on that committee. One of my greatest wishes in this sport is to have a vote for the NASCAR Hall of Fame. Don't think that's ever going to happen. I just kind of, I don't know. I yank on Superman's cape a little too much, but you know, whatever. But yeah, that is pretty cool that you have that opportunity to do that. Well, thank you, Rick. And you are not without your influence when it comes to voting for the Hall of Fame. Don't forget that. You know, speaking of my guy, this weekend, Saturday at Caraway Speedway in Asheboro, North Carolina, the track is going to be celebrating Sam Ard's selection as one of the 75 greatest drivers in NASCAR history, Ricky Thomas at Thomas Brothers Country Ham put that together. Normally, wild horses couldn't stop me from being there, but I got stuck driving the old pace truck at Lonesome Pine that same day. Got yeah. it. I got <laughs> stuck doing that. Okay. Man, you're going to ride wild horses up there to Lonesome Pine to drive that pace truck. Well, you know, it's been... I think over a month since I got to do that because they only race every other week. And the last time that they had a race was the day that Adam graduated from app. So I wasn't able to be there that day. So I'm getting the itch. I gotta, I gotta go drive that pace truck. (laughs) Go up there and scratch that itch, man. (laughs) Steve this week in the first of what will be two installments of our interview, we talked to NASCAR hall of famer and NASCAR 75 driver, Matt Kenseth. This week, Matt discusses going up against rival Robbie Riser in and around their homes in Wisconsin, and then just a few short years later, joining forces in the Bush Series. That deal led to Matt and the team's first Bush Series win at Rockingham. Very early on in his Bush Series career, Matt was befriended by Winston Cup superstar Mark Martin, and that relationship led to help from and a Winston Cup deal with team owner Jack Roush. And finally, Matt recalls his competitive relationship with Dale Earnhardt Jr. Then in our second segment, we're going to go back to the February 26, 1998 issue of Winston Cup scene. Jeff Gordon overcomes an ill-handling Hendrick Motorsports Chevrolet to win at Rockingham. Matt Kenseth scored that first Bush Series win at Rockingham while the NASCAR world was still basking in the glow of Dale Earnhardt's Daytona 500 victory just the week before with crew chief Larry McReynolds. This week, we have increased Patreon support from my good friend, Kevin McKenzie. So Kevin, you were already a member of the team and you saw fit to bump that Patreon support up. And listen, man, I appreciate you. I appreciate you doing that. I appreciate your friendship. So thank you. Thank you a lot. And listeners, you can help us out by grabbing a t-shirt. 
You can help us out by leaving us a five-star rating and a written review on your podcast platform of choice. And if you possibly can, listeners, please consider helping us out on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash the same vault podcast. Or if you would prefer to do a one-time show of support, you can do that via paypal.me slash the same vault podcast or venmo.com slash the same vault podcast. And just as a reminder, this show is not affiliated in any way with American City Business Journal's owner of the same brand. Early 1990s, you were racing against this Robbie Riser character uh, several times a week. From what he said, the two of you were basically okay with each other. What do you remember about racing against John and Robbie back then? Well, well, John and Robbie are way two different people. So John's like nicest <laughs> guy I could ever meet, right? And uh, Robbie was very, uh, very, very competitive, um, very stubborn, very bullheaded, uh, you know. <laughs> and uh, and I was and I was picking. I still do because he always cheat his cars up so bad. His bodies are always like super good looking. He'd always run this old Firebird with a nose cut way down low and. Um, I'd give him a hard time because he'd show up for Artco races where they actually use templates, and um, he couldn't. Uh, they wouldn't let him compete a few times. <laughs> but anyway, uh, racing as Robbie Slinger was kind of his place. He ran really well there. He ran really well a lot of places. He ran well at Madison. Uh, so I'd say Madison and Slinger are probably the two tracks we raced against the most. I would say um, my first few years we didn't really race against each other that much because he was a lot better. Than I, he was a lot faster than I was. A lot better yeah. than I was, and when I was kind of getting started, and then probably ninety three is when I got running much better in late models when I met Rick Kipley and he built us an engine and all of a sudden we were we were fast. And uh, 91, 92, first couple of years in late models, we weren't really very fast. I mean, we won a couple of races here or there, but really weren't very competitive on a consistent basis. So, uh, but 93, 94, we certainly, uh, we certainly had some battles, you know, we, uh, we, we duked it out a little bit, you know, for some, for some wins at Slinger, for some wins at Madison. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't think he really, cared for me really that much uh, for those couple of years but uh like he says and he's right you know he was he was kind of the not really much older but he was the more established kind of kind of veteran been doing it for a while and i was kind of the young kid coming in and and um you know being on both sides of that fence through my career it's not fun being the older guy and you kind of been doing that and you get these young kids kind of come in and, and be especially if their attitude's not exactly perfect <laughs> so the two of you were okay with each other but from what he said your dad's kind of clashed a little they clash a couple times but my dad so <laughs> i was i think so my dad to back up a little bit my dad started racing when i was about 13 he was 45 or something so he didn't start till much later but um he had three brothers and they all raced at a little local short track at jefferson and um finally my dad as he got older decided to, to race it and I, I worked on his car so um i was the only 13 year old kid in the pit area who had to calm his father down constantly <laughs> so uh, our relationship has always been a little yeah, bit a little yeah, bit backwards yeah, so i was yeah. always calming him down you know he was the one who'd want to you know, you know, get mad and do all that and, and give him some credit. A lot of that was just to kind of protect me, right? It's kind of, you know, you're his kid and he's trying to protect him and keep an eye on him and make sure uh, nobody's taking advantage of you. But yeah, dad would get pretty wound up. <laughs> so you made your first Bush Series start for Carl Wagner at Charlotte in the fall of 96. How long had you been working for him? Just, just him? that one year, okay. a race for Carl in, in 96. So we, I moved to North Carolina. 
um, in 96 um, with a deal Carl put together with the idea of racing the, uh, the Hooters Cup series at okay. the time. And uh, a few all-pro races here or there. He said, we're going to run some truck races, maybe run some bush races. And um, not much of it really came to fruition. We did run the whole um, uh, Hooters Cup series, ran some other late model races there. We, we ran pretty decent. And then uh, we only ran that, that one um, you know, bush race. So we were sharing a building with Bobby Dodder, and he got a car together. And... Um, you know, Carl, he was an interesting, interesting man. And uh, we didn't have an engine to go there. And, and obviously, Carl was an engine builder, famous engine builder, had tons of success. And he was going to send our engine down for me to run my first race. So it was a backup car of daughters. And uh, we're sitting there, and you had to go through tech on Wednesday back then because I know you remember it well. You'd qualify, and then you'd run qualifying races. And there was just there were 72 entries there. And I think they took 28 by time, and then they ran a qualifying race, took some there, and then you had a couple of provisionals or whatever. So, so. you had to run the hooligan race? Yeah, so um, we uh, we got there to go through tech on Wednesday, and uh, we didn't have an engine in the car. Carl didn't have an engine down there yet, so that was the start of our weekend. And um, That's a problem. Yeah, we got the engine there that night after we went through tech. We are pushing through tech with no engine, which was really bizarre to me. <laughs> and uh, we finally got the engine in it. We, uh, we qualified 29th. We missed the 28 cut by one. And I think we finished um, – I know Joe Nemechek won that hooligan race, and I think we finished second or third, maybe something yeah. like that. But we made the race, uh, finished the race. It was a experience, uh, to say the least. It was, um, it was a, it was a lot for me. Um, you know, just it was, it was a very interesting race. I learned a lot that race. I learned a lot about people. I learned a lot about, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of different, different things. I kind of had a crew chief um, at the time that was. Uh, you know, he pretty much knew how to do everything. I didn't know anything because I was just a kid coming in, which he was right. But, you know, I kept kind of telling him what the car was doing or asking for different things. He wouldn't do it because that's not how these cars work. And it was just a – it wasn't really a great experience, but it was a good experience as far as um, as, as far as teaching me a lot and learning a lot. Now, I did watch one video that you had done with Kyle Petty, and you were talking about a, a habit that Carl had and the way that you got him back. <laughs> that's that's the only that's the only question uh, that I that I want to copy yeah. from somebody else. Yeah, so, I, I want to hear that story. So wh- Kyle had that in video. I don't remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't remember talking about that. What were we doing? Where Carl would. Yeah, I know that, but yeah, yeah. So Carl had it, a it, habit. Was, it was the coffee with Kyle. Dude. Oh, the coffee with Kyle. Yeah, thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember that now. Um, so Carl would have this like there's a few people I met in my life that would have this as as we all have as as men probably that have this bad habit of going wanting to like hit people in the crotch. So he'd walk <laughs> by and and um, he'd try to always give you like a nut slap as he'd walk by, you know, <laughs> uh, for lack of a better way to put it. Sorry, um, and um, you do it all the time, and I just. Um, I just didn't find it funny. First of all, it's painful. It's like, yeah. all it's weird. And, and, and it's just, I just kind of got tired of it, you know? And, and Carl was a man of few words. I'd never really got to know him very well. Like yeah. Robbie worked with him a lot and ran his engines forever up there. I never really ran his engines. So I never really got to know him, you know, I don't know if you knew him at all, but just a very, um, I knew who, I yeah, knew man, who man, yeah. a few words and yeah. just, just very, very different characters. So, uh, so, so anyway, yeah, we're at the race shop, that building that we shared with, with Bobby Dodder and Carl was down, you know, cause he was from Wisconsin and, and he came down and, and he saw something and he went by and, you know, tried to whack me like he always does or whatever. So I was, I was kind of ready for it. And, um, <laughs> he'd go in the bathroom, this big bathroom there and he'd go disappear for a while to do his business or whatever. And there was a pretty good crack under the door. It was about that big. And, um, he was in there, and I waited for a minute or two to make sure he was he was settled in. And um, I took a big uh, a big uh, hole, one of them whole big long things of those blackjack firecrackers, 
And I lit him and threw him under the door. Lit him and, up. Um, <laughs> yeah, and uh, besides being in a loud concrete space or a small concrete space, it was very loud and very smoky. Um, it uh, He was in there for quite some time after that, and when he came out, he did not look happy, and there was a lot of smoke. <laughs> I mean, a lot of smoke out the door. And um, Was he, it a, like on the TV show where they're all black and their hair is singed? Uh, and, no, it was more like, you know, <laughs> the old Cheech and Chong when it opened the van door. Yeah, it's just like it's just rolling out everywhere. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, but I, I never uh, got slapped again by him, ever. <laughs> that was it. I fixed the problem. <laughs> that is awesome. Now, that was 96 in May and the following spring, in the spring of 97, you get a phone call from Robbie. What do you remember about the phone call, and how surprised were you by that phone call? Yeah, so so 96, the thing with Carl really didn't work out that great. Like, we didn't really get – we only ran that one bush race. The, the truck stuff never happened. We just – it just wasn't – we just really couldn't get it really off the ground. So I ended up moving back to Wisconsin and went to drive uh, ASA cars for Jerry Gunderman. Uh, which had a lot of success with Scott Hansen and, um, you know, Ted Musgrave. A lot of guys drove for him. That uh, Mark Martin had tons of success. After Jimmy Fanning worked for for Jerry. So I went back up there to work for him, and uh, we went and ran a couple races early in the year, a couple ASA races, and uh, I was going to run the whole ASA season and some other stuff, and we were down running an all-pro race at Rougemont. And uh, Robbie called me up and, and said that, well, let me backtrack a little bit. The week or, week or two before that, I believe it was, we were down here to race something else. And I just randomly stopped by their shop. I don't know why I stopped by because we weren't really friends or anything, but I stopped by and he was really nice. Showed us his whole shop, walked around, looked at it and stuff and talked to him a little bit. And, um, I saw him in Las Vegas that spring. We were running a late model car for Gunnerman in Las Vegas. And, um, actually had Robbie spot for me out there. I went and talked to him a little bit and, uh, they were having some trouble with their driver and they wrecked a couple of cars. So Rob spot, Robbie spotted for me in Vegas. And then, um, so that would have been like maybe in March or something like that. So then maybe a month or so later, we we're down racing at Rougemont, and um, that was after the Vegas thing. And plus, I stopped by his shop, and and so I was kind of you know, kind of talked to him for the first time since he moved away, you know, yeah. from racing up there, which was probably I don't know what year he moved down here, probably ninety five, if I had a guess, ninety something like 90, that. Yeah, ninety three, ninety four, like somewhere in there. Yeah, ninety four, ninety five. Is at least ninety four. Is ninety four, ninety five? Um, and so. So yeah, he called me. He said, "Hey, we'd like you to, you know, on your on your way home because we'd drive where I was driving back to Wisconsin. We'd like you to stop by the shop and just kind of want to talk to you about something and you know whatever." And so now, when uh, you dropped by the shop earlier, had yeah. you had you had any kind oh, of no, no, nothing conver- about no, nothing okay. about driving for nothing like okay. that. No, no, nothing. So, um, so after the race that night, I drove down there and met. I think I think pretty sure my dad was with me, and we went down and met um, uh, John and Robbie, and uh, talked to him. You know, all the cars were wrecked in the shop, and and he's like, "Hey, we gotta make a driver change. We just can't get this to work." And you know, they had several drivers on the list, and I think Robbie was the only one who really really wanted me to drive it. And um, so I said, "Yeah, if you'd like to drive it, you know, we'd we'd love to have you come down." But you know, we need a driver next weekend in Nashville. I think it was the next weekend. And I looked around, and every car was wrecked. I'm like, "Well, do you have any cars?" Oh yeah, yeah. There's one at the body shop. He sure assured <laughs> me, right? So he's like, "Well, sit in this car, see if everything fits." Yeah. And I, I mean, then you jump at the opportunity to do anything. I mean, I wasn't really. You know, young anymore. I think I was probably 20, you know, 24 maybe at the time, maybe a little bit older. And I was like, eh, I'm going to get this chance pretty soon. You're not going to get it because they're already getting younger and younger. You know, Gordon was, was was young and Elliot Sadler came in younger and like all these guys were, were coming in there. 
And uh, so, yeah, it fits great. And uh, so I went back to Wisconsin. And, um, you know, it was rather risky because, I mean, they, they weren't running real great and they were wrecking a lot. And But um, I never had the chance before and knew I'd never have a chance at, like, a functioning team to do it if I never took the first chance. I was never going to get the, the other one, right? So I just um, – decided to do that so it was hard i went up there and told jerry that i was i was gonna go down and drive, ride that drive that bush car and i mean i just started racing for him so that was a really hard conversation to have and just uh packed everything up in my little chevy cavalier and drove uh drove drove south and uh actually i met him in Matt nashville race that weekend and then uh, uh got my stuff moved down in the next couple of weeks and been down here ever since i have this very vivid image of you at nashville your first race with robbie nobody basically down here knew the name Matt Kenseth, but you qualified third. Then you went to Talladega, I guess the next race, finished seventh. Were you surprised by how quickly you found success here? Yes. I mean, there's a few things that that pop into my mind, and it kind of goes back to that that Charlotte thing. So, I mean, not not talk bad about anybody. The crew chief I was working with in Charlotte when I drove um, Carl's car, you know, we – we 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 put spring in the right rear and it made the car tighter. He said like that's impossible. It's impossible. It made the car tighter. I'm like I'm telling you, it did. It was impossible. So like I had no confidence, right? Like telling you you're stupid and just don't, you know, basically telling you you're yeah. stupid. You know, that's no possible way that did that. You're wrong. You're doing. I'm like okay. And uh, so with Robbie, when we started practicing at Nashville, to be honest with you, after like our second run, like I knew it was going to work with him. Now, really? now I can't say I knew that I was going to be there that long. I knew I was going to win races, knew we were going to move the cup together, win a championship. Like I, I couldn't have <laughs> yeah. ever dreamed yeah. that. Right. Um, but I knew it was going to be a good relationship because him being a driver – even if I would come in, you know, because a lot of people would always tell you that transition between late models and bush cars. These are big, heavy cars with radial tires, and those are really little light cars with normal tires. Like, they'd always give you this stuff. So, basically, you'd kind of hear, like, okay, well, does that mean my feedback's not good? We can't get it to feel like that. It has to be like this. And they they try to get that in your head where you couldn't just be yourself. So, with Robbie, you know, I could go in there and drive it, and I was like, I don't know. I think it feels like this. And he's like, okay, well, what if we try this? Sometimes this works in these cars. And we have this conversation back and forth as equals, you know? and he's drove before so he knew what I was feeling and you know most of the time we'd try what he wanted to try and then we'd try what I wanted to try and we'd figure out what felt better and we kind of would go through the journey together right. you yeah. know it wasn't yeah. like him standing there hey I've been down here for three years you know this is your first year down there you don't know what you're talking about with these cars that's not going to work we can't do that it was never it was yeah. never yeah. like that and that's why it works so well is because um, you know right from the beginning it was a partnership you know we were both in it together and, and we're both pulling on the same end of the string and trying to figure out how to make it work was there ever any kidding around about racing against each other back home uh you know yeah there was i don't know if there was necessarily immediately but uh, yeah. there was so i'm sure robbie told you since i think he's been here that he still has <laughs> the highest finish of any driver for riser enterprise at nashville <laughs> at fairgrounds so he reminded me that so we qualified third that day we were running really well and uh, jeff purvis spun me out and we didn't hit anything and um, i can't remember where we came back and finished i feel like we finished 10th or 11th or something 11th, like that yeah and um, but but we ran pretty well it was overall a success and Talladega was a success so we had a we had a decent start um it wasn't always super smooth there was one time where um i was thinking he might get rid of me um but other than that it was pretty smooth we went through a through a three or four week stretch it wasn't uh that wasn't very good. I wasn't sure what was going to happen, but um, but overall it was great. Was there a specific point when you were like, okay, I can do this, I can race at this level, or was that something that developed over time? Well, 
that's a tough question to answer because I I never really, you know, to be hundred percent honest. I mean, even even to the time I retired, although when I, when I finally did, I mean, I just felt like I couldn't do it anymore. You know, after the the year driving a forty two car with no practice and just I just didn't run well, and I always said if I couldn't run well, I wasn't going to do it. And I just I, I mean, so I never really felt comfortable ever my whole career like I've never felt no. sat there and been like oh yeah I can do this oh yeah I'm you know whatever I just never felt like that because I know that you can get replaced any day I know that as soon as in anything that's competitive where you kind of rest on your laurels you don't try to get better you don't keep studying you don't keep trying to make your car faster you don't try to get better as a driver you don't try to make better pit. as soon as you start doing any of that stuff I mean you're you're gone you're 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 fading out no matter what sport yeah. it is no matter what business it is I mean anything in life if you're not always trying to get better you're going to get worse you know, so I just never really, I just never really felt that comfortable. I never in a million years would have dreamed I would ever made it to this level. And uh, once I got it there, once I got there, I certainly wasn't going to be like, oh, this is great. I made it to Winston <laughs> Cup racing and just yeah. not try anymore. You know, um, you'd be gone in a hurry. So I just, I never really got that, that comfort, honestly. At some point, you and Mark Martin started talking. What were those earliest conversations like? Were they just racer to racer or was there actually talk? about somehow actually getting hooked up with Roush Race. Yeah, I mean I mean both. Mark was very direct and uh Really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah it was very very direct and uh, it was real quick. So, um as you remember, the drivers meetings used to be much different than they ended up being through the years. They used to just be in a very little building. It was just drivers and you know, the couple of powers to be from NASCAR and telling you the rules and all that kind of stuff. And uh, and I guess Gucci. So um, I was I remember it clear as day. So it was um, it was actually Talladega. My first my first uh, so my second start with Risers. I was right. sitting at the drivers meeting, and uh, Mark was running the race and came walking straight in and grabbed my hand and introduced himself and shook my head and he's like, "Hey man, I've been watching you. You're awesome." And he started talking to me and it was like very uh, very overwhelming. And um, it I can't remember if it was exactly that day. Um, but it wasn't long after that where he's like, Hey man, we got to, we're going to, we're going to help you. We need to do something for you. I got to get you at Roush racing. I got to get you to meet Jack. And then there was a point there, uh, that year, it all happened that first year, um, you know, where I ended up signing a contract with Roush racing kind of development type contract. I go with Mark and Jimmy testing. Um, he would try to help us with some information. Uh, Robbie and I with our, with our cars, try to help a little bit, you know, different setup stuff. He give us, give us hints and ideas, a uh, little bits here and there. And, um, and really started getting involved, you know, really, really right away. Really, really wow. didn't, really, really didn't take long. I went to went to Jack and vouched for me, even though he didn't even really know me. And I went to to Dover in the spring of that year and went and met Jack in a trailer and met him for the first time and and talked to him. And uh, really, that's when our relationship started. So I guess, um, you know, my second, well, been a third start ever. My second start for Risers is when I first met Mark. I had no idea it was that early. Yeah. Now, was there ever any Ford versus Chevy? issues because obviously Roush is Ford and you guys were running Chevys at the time. There wasn't because it was all riser enterprise stuff. You know, they had okay. a little bit of a, a, a relationship with Chevy and, and even, even my first couple of years um, driving for, for Roush, you know, we still drove Chevys at Robbie's side, you know, still drove his Bush car Chevys and nobody really seemed to have an issue with it then. Okay. All right. I can remember having lunch with you and Robbie during that off season between 97 and 98. And that, that point sponsorship was really up in the air. How big of a concern was that for you 
were you looking at other options? Were you talking to Mark about what you could maybe do with Roush if Robbie's deal didn't work out? Or were you all in with Robbie? Well, um, no, I mean, I was all in, you know, with Robbie's trying to keep doing his thing together, which we did do it all together until, you know, you know, really until he stopped crew chiefing and, you know, from, from there. So, I mean, really, really our whole careers, we did that together. Um, so ironically, Roush was the one getting us our sponsor. So the, we, we, uh, you know, Kraft left after that year and then, um, Roush, you know, Jeff Smith and the marketing group and everything had a, um, sponsor for us or, you know, we thought we had a sponsor for us and we were kind of ready for that. And it kind of fell, fell apart you know, at the last minute. So, uh, I remember it was tough on Robbie. I remember, you know, Robbie and Robbie and his dad and I flying to New York to meet with people and try to scrape some money up and couldn't get it. And most things wouldn't fall through. And it was just, uh, you know, then there was just a million sponsors, you know, there's all, all different sponsors is obviously much smaller, but so we travel and go see people and, um, you know, but, but through that time I did have a couple offers from other, uh, you know, car owners, but I didn't even entertain them. I mean, I'd tell Robbie about every one of them, but I didn't even entertain them. I'm like, ah, we're going to make this work. I remember driving to Daytona and him being, we were driving in a van Daytona and he was all depressed. He's like, you need to go take one of these other jobs. You're stupid. You know, we're not, yeah. we, we, don't, we might not even have enough money to race after Daytona. Like if you don't go take one of these other jobs, you're, you're not going to get a chance. You just wow. need to go take it. You know, I'm like, I'm not taking it. We're going to make it work. And so we got through Daytona on a one race deal. I remember we took the car out of there. So much the sports changed the NASCAR was so great. They let us take the car out there and go paint it across the street and uh, put a sponsor on there for one race. And then we went to Rockingham the next week and um, didn't have a sponsor still and uh, didn't didn't really think we were going to be able to finish the season, even though it was only the second race. And uh, we put um, Lycos on there to um, just kind of thank him for Daytona. They didn't pay us a dime for that race. We ended up winning that race. Uh, it was our first win together, um, first NASCAR win for any of us on the team, any kind of NASCAR win uh, together. And... Um, they ended up coming on for the whole year after that race. That kind of kind of saved us and got us enough funding to uh, get through the rest of the year. So Rockingham, what do you remember about those last few laps with Tony Stewart? Yeah, it was funny. So I just, um, you know, I remember running them down. We were, we were pretty good on a long run, and uh, there were so many great drivers in that race. You know, Mark Martin was in that race, and Jeff Burton, I think Dale Jarrett was even in it. And uh, Tony was going to get his first win for, for Gibbs, and, I remember catching with like three or four to go and um, I got off at two and I don't even know what I did, but I kind of ran into the side of him a little bit and I got kind of got loose. I was like, man, that was stupid. Just, I mean, just kind of hyped up, you know, I didn't, it's hard to explain, but you get this feeling when you actually see the leader and you might oh, have yeah, a chance yeah. to win any race. Like you get yeah. this. Uh, and uh, so I was probably just a little overexcited and I kind of regathered it up and then um, honestly, I didn't think I was going to beat him. And we had a lap car. You know, I thought I had to run on him again with a couple to go and there was a lap car in our way. And then um, I got into three and there was that, it's a little hard to explain for if somebody hasn't drove Rockingham, but there's a spot entering three. There's a little bump and there's the line down there. Similar to Atlanta three and four, how it used to be. And if you grab the line, it would like hook the car. And then yeah. with the, the push cars, they didn't have a ton of power. And, you know, you know, back then compared to what they are now, they're not super fast. But when you got it hooked, as soon as it would hook like that, you could just mat it. And it, then the left rear would stay on the line too, and it would yeah. it would be really fast. And if you missed that line, it was usually two tenths slower. Like it just it kind of was kind of wore out right there where most people would run. But if you could get the lefts on that fresher stuff, it was fast. And I just remember getting in that corner and didn't think I was going to get to him. And he went in and missed the line by about three or four inches. And uh, I hooked that line. When I hooked it, I floored it. 
and he was going up the hill just a little bit, and he had all those waves. And and um, still to this day, um, everybody except for Joe Gibbs will, will, will maybe he'll he'll argue it because he was still mad about it. But like I don't even know that we hit. Like I, I mean, it was just those days where you could get close to people, and then you know, especially offset left to get the air off him and get a little loose. So um, I got the run toward him. I mean, it was only just I mean, it was like a foot at a time. It was barely. And as soon as I got almost to him, he got a little bit looser and slid up the track, and I had enough momentum right after lift to beat him to the finish. So it was. Um, uh, definitely the most um, exciting race of my life. Um, not a win bigger. Never had a win bigger than that ever. Um, no matter what any of them were, um, just because that? of, I mean, because without it, I'd never have any of the rest of them. You know, I mean, wow. it's it's just, um, I mean, that was it. I mean, it was an exciting finish. It was, um, you know, you beat one of the best ever drive race car at the end of the end of the day. I didn't have any sponsor on the car. We didn't know if we we're going to continue to race. Um, everybody's standing there in the pits with hodgepodge uniforms and no sponsors on our uniforms. And, um, you know, everybody that, that was, worked at I the shop. I think that was the last plain uniform ever in yeah. Victory Island. Yeah, everybody, <laughs> uh, yeah, everybody working at the shop had a job to do over the wall, everybody, including Robbie. Um, so it was just, uh, it was really interesting. There's only like seven of us or six of us that worked at the shop, and um, we went there and won that race against some of the best. And um, it was just the, it was just an awesome feeling, and it was just a lot, of, it was a lot of fun. As that season went on, it became pretty clear that the championship was going to come down to you and Dale Jr., and there was so much attention on him. Was there ever a sense that that maybe was a good thing for you? Because while he had to deal with all those kinds of distractions, basically all you had to do was race. Or did you have the sense that it was a David versus Goliath situation? Well, I mean, I have never, uh, you know, made excuses or anything like that. But but certainly, I mean, the funding and the amount of testing they did, and um, certainly they – they had some advantages, but um, but cert, but can't make any excuses. You know, same for everybody when you get to the track. And I felt like there was a lot of times we ran as competitive as him, but there's a lot of times he just you know spanked our tail. There were some tracks that he was just really really good at. You know, he was really good at. I mean, I could I could list the tracks. There's a few that we were really good at that we were definitely better, noticeably better. You know, we go to uh, Dover. I would even say Charlotte. You know, some of the bigger tracks. Uh, but man, he was so good at like. Um, a lot of those flatter short tracks, you know, like Gateway and Richmond and places like that. Like I couldn't hold a candle to him and he would beat us at all those places. So, um, so yeah, it was fun. And, um, I think Jeff Green finished second in points that year. Him and I became really good friends, enjoyed racing against him as well. Um, but the junior stuff, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'd be lying if I'd say there wasn't times in the first three or four years of our careers paralleling where maybe I wasn't, you know, a little bit envious, you know, of, of maybe some of the recognition he got when I thought there was times where we ran, you know, just as good as he did. But yet another hand, um, I also witnessed a lot of times with him where it was a huge hassle. And um, I yeah. think he would have gladly traded places and yeah. gone places and not be recognized and be able to go to sit down and eat dinner or something, you know. So um, so it was really it was really interesting to watch. Uh, Dale Jr. always had a lot of pressure on him. He always handled it, um, you know, really well being, being him. And um, it wasn't easy. Like I think a lot of people just think it was easy, you know, and it really wasn't. He worked for he worked for everything he got, and um, it was really hard to be in his dad's shadow. And I was uh, that was one place I wasn't envious of. That's one thing I wouldn't have wanted. And that was uh, uh, I think that was that was tougher for him to do than a lot of people think. You did run Bill Elliott's Cup car at Dover in late nineteen ninety eight, and you finished sixth. And that seemed, from the outside looking in, that seemed to be the race that really put you on a lot of people's Cup radar. Like this guy is the real deal. Did you pick up on driving a cup car that quickly? Or, again, was there more to it? 
beginner's luck. Um, <laughs> Come on, so man. how I say that, uh, you know, there's never been a bigger win than Rockingham. I would say I can't recall a race I had more fun in than that first race at Dover. Really? I mean, it was just, um, it was so much fun. There was no pressure to do it. I mean, okay. the circumstances weren't great, obviously with Bill's father dying. Um, but man, Mike Beam is great. Joe Groney was great. Um, you know, Lauren Rainier spotting. Lauren was a great, great spotter. Had fun with him on the radio. We just had like, it, there was just no pressure. We won a bush race the day before in, in, in Robbie's car, and we're just kind of hauling the mail, and we kind of brought some of that stuff over there a little bit, that setup stuff. And, you know, the car was fast. I got to race against all kind of my heroes I'd only watch on TV. I mean, man, I got to race against, you know, Jeff and Mark and, you know, Earnhardt and uh, Dale Jarrett and Rusty and, like, all these guys I only watched on TV and Laban, both of Labonis and, like, all these. And it was just crazy to even be on the track with them. You know, it felt like a, a dream, really. So then um, as good as we ran, we we honestly just off speed should have finished third. We, we ran uh, Mark and, and Jeff Gordon and Mark both had the field covered. Other than that, we could have ran with them. And uh, I got behind a little bit on the last pit stop and couldn't get by Rusty. He did not want me to pass him at all. <laughs> and he was making it really, 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 really hard on me. And I, I didn't think I was going to be able to get by him without wrecking one of us or both of us. I just couldn't, I couldn't get back by him. But most of the day we ran, you know, somewhere in that area. And if we stacked everybody up, it felt like we we're a third place car, um, but never drove anything with that much horsepower. And you could just drive the track a lot different and it was one of my favorite tracks anyway and uh, just had a just had a really good time i mean i kind of came into that race a lot of confidence winning the day before and like i said there wasn't really pressure i wasn't supposed to be there we didn't have any concrete plans to go cup racing in the future um i mean we hope to but we didn't have anything put together um so with all that it just um there's no pressure and it was just fun so the year 2000 you do move up to cup with jack and you go to charlotte and you win your first cup race what do you remember about that night? Well, I mean, I remember a few things. So Dale Jr. and I moved up together. He won Texas, and I think he won an all-star race the week before. And um, I felt definitely a little urgency to win, um, you know, just because he already won at Texas. And, you know, I was like, man, we gotta, we got to get going here. And, and um, so anyway. Was that um, self-inflicted or was that? It was self-inflicted. Okay. Um, but um, – you know the 600 Dale Jr. had to feel covered. I mean, he had us. He had us all covered, and uh, that was in the day where uh, I know they'd hate it when you say this, but there was a period of a couple of years there where you would get um, uh, get in trouble for it like this, but you get a bad set of tires for another way of putting it. For no other way of putting it, so you just get a set for it, and you don't know why. You know, you couldn't find it. That was before there was spring rating and doing all that stuff. You had no idea why, but you'd be out running. You know, whatever you'd be at Charlotte running. 32 flats you put a set of tires on and it would be so loose you couldn't hold on you'd be running almost 33 flats like it was just like they were that different and you just didn't have any idea and uh dale jr's last set was one of those so he was he had everybody dominated and i remember he put on his last set of tires and just went went straight backwards and uh, bobby was leading the race and ran bobby down at the end and um uh, it was a really long race we had a big rain delay in the middle i mean it was forever and i remember running bobby down i was like dang man i don't I'm actually going to get there, you know, and, and back then, if you got there, you could pass somebody, you know, yeah. it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like how it got to be later with all the aerodependence and everything. I mean, if you got there, you're going to get around them. And I was like, man, I'm actually going to get here, you know, and, um, you know, caught him with, I don't know, a dozen or so laps to go or something like that. And, and got around him was able to win that first race. So that was, um, that was a pretty exciting night. From the outside looking in again, there seemed to always be teams at Roush racing that had, good equipment and there was a set of teams that 
didn't seem to have the best of equipment. How aware of that were you? Did you get involved in protecting your turf, so to speak, or was that something you just tried to stay out of? You know, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that's not true at all. Okay. Like I, I'm I'm gonna say that that's that that from all the years that I was at Roush, everybody had equal opportunity. There was okay. nobody that got better equipment than somebody else. There was people that thought they didn't get as good equipment <laughs> as somebody else, yeah. but it was never that way. Now, now when you had that many teams, I mean, maybe, you know, there was an engine that had four more horsepower or six more right. horsepower, and maybe, you know, Mark would get that and the bottom guy wouldn't, or maybe when you first designed a new car, they'd go in order of maybe points. So maybe there was times there was a little bit of leg time, but, um, you know, I touched on a little bit, you know, my hall of fame stuff, but the, the, the best stuff, the best thing about driving for Jack is he'd give you whatever you wanted, but you better be careful. I, I watched a driver get himself fired there before just by, you know, making demands, what he'd need to win. Jack would just give up. He's like, I, I need, I remember sitting in a meeting. It's like, if I had drops out car, I go win races immediately. If I had this, I go, you know, I'm like, Ooh, be careful. Cause I, I already knew Jack, like I am sort of figured out, you know? And he's like, okay. And then you look at the guy, he's like, Get him on order today. Like he'd, he'd get you whatever whatever you needed. But if you were going to say that's what you needed and you're going to run better and that you had to make a case for having it, and you better do what <laughs> you know. There better be results yeah. along with it because he wasn't about just wasting money and throwing it out the window. But um, on the other hand, I remember all those years. Like if we really thought there was something that was better and we did the research and really needed it, he never ever ever once asked what it cost. He'd be like, okay, if, if that's going to make you better, go ahead and get it. You know, and he and he and he'd get it for you. So. Um, you know, the thing I was just thinking about about yesterday with the, the the seventy-five list or whatever is like, look how many rush racing drivers are on there. I mean, it says something about Jack right there when you see yeah. Jeff Burton on there, Greg Biffle's on there, um, obviously Mark Martin is on there, like um, uh, Kurt Busch is on there. I mean, that's I mean that that tells you a lot about Jack right there, and that's that's five different teams right there. Carl Edwards is on there. Um, uh, I might even end up on there. So I mean, that that puts I mean that puts six drivers on there just in the area. You know, in yeah. the last twenty years or whatever. I mean, that's it's pretty impressive. I don't yeah. know if there's any other owner that has that. I mean, maybe Rick, I guess, but other than that, I don't know if there's another another owner that has that many drivers that are on that list. Hey, race fans! John Dodson here from NASCAR Technical Institute. NASCAR Tech is open and enrolling with classes starting every three to six weeks. In our 48-week automotive technology program, students learn everything from vehicle electronic technology to diagnostics and drivability. And as our exclusive educational provider for NASCAR, we offer a 15-week NASCAR elective where students learn engines, fabrication, aerodynamics, pit crew essentials, and more. NASCAR Tech also offers 36-week welding and CNC machining training programs so you can choose the path that best fits your career goals. Ready to see how you can get started? Visit uti.edu slash NASCAR today. NASCAR Technical Institute prepares graduates to work as entry-level automotive service technicians. Some graduates who take NASCAR-specific electives also may have job opportunities in racing-related industries. NASCAR Tech is an educational institution and cannot guarantee employment or salary. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. I had not talked to Matt Kenseth in years. 
when we sat down to do this interview. And for whatever reason, it got me thinking. I mean, Matt and Dell Jr. and Tony Stewart are the first members of the NASCAR Hall of Fame and the NASCAR 75 group whose careers I covered in the very beginning in NASCAR. You could kind of say that about Jeff Gordon and Bobby Labonte. Bobby scored his first Bush Series win of his career in April 1991 at Bristol, the first race weekend for which I was ever officially credentialed. And I also covered Jeff's first Bush Series win in Atlanta. And my my best memory from that day was after his post-race interview, he sat around at the back of the press box looking kind of lost. Like, what do I do now? Where am I supposed to go? (laughs) Hey, a new experience (laughs) for him. That's for sure. Well, it wouldn't be long until there were plenty of people (laughs) pointing the way for Jeff Gordon. Oh yeah. (laughs) He got very used to what to do after his winner's interview. (laughs) Very used to it. (laughs) But both Jeff and Bobby were already racing in cup by the time I took over coverage of the Bush series in 1997, but Matt and Dale, especially I had working relationships with them and I certainly spent the most time covering their Bush series career. So I personally kind of take ownership in what they've been able to accomplish and not ownership in the sense that anybody owes me anything. It's just that I was there during the earliest days in the division and have seen firsthand how far they've come. Steve, I have seen both Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Matt Kenseth in plain uniforms you know that's a very interesting point you're making there because your relationship with those two drivers is probably greater at that time and certainly at the time when they entered winston cup competition than any other riders you were there at the start you got the edge over all of us i didn't cover them in the bush series i never saw them with sponsorless uniforms on that was you and you know what i think it gives you a huge advantage Well, it's not, again, it's not like we were the best of friends and we hung out away from the racetrack or anything like that. It certainly wasn't that, but I would call it a good working relationship. And I will say this about Dale Earnhardt Jr. My wife, Jeannie, had a miscarriage Mm -hmm. in November 1998. So I wasn't able to go to the last race of the year that year at Homestead. And Steve, Dale Jr. called us from the racetrack to say that he was sorry. He'd heard what had happened. And he told me that he had heard that I was trying to get up with him for a story in the paper and all that, whatever. He said, you take care of what you got to do at the doctor and I will meet you anywhere, anytime. And we will talk. That's the advantage of the working relationship you had. Yeah. Yeah. And he left that on our voicemail. And when Jeannie heard that, it was actually kind of funny. She said, I'm going to that interview. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so me and Jeannie and Dale Jr., we met at a restaurant there in Mooresville and we talked on the record for maybe 30, 45 minutes. And then I clicked the tape recorder off and Steve, we sat there and talked for another 45 minutes. Boy, just, that's that's just cool. Shoot the breeze. Great. Well, so, like I said, I didn't have that type of relationship with either one of them, but I had a closer relationship with Dale Jr. because he knew. I was his father's friend. He knew that I knew his dad. And we could talk about things from time to time that weren't racing related. So we did have that association. Matt ran his first Bush Series race for Carl Wagner at Charlotte in 1996. And Steve, 
Carl had this, uh, let's just call it a habit that Matt didn't particularly care for. And I don't particularly blame him. Matt had enough one day. And when Carl visited the little engine builder's room, <laughs> Matt lit him up <laughs> the stall and the whole room with a bunch of firecrackers. There is nothing that I like more than a good case of payback. Matt didn't get mad. He got even. And that is absolutely positively the very best way to deal with something like that. Now, this whole time that Matt was telling this story, I don't know if you're a MASH fan or not, but all I could picture was that episode of MASH where Henry Blake wouldn't let the helicopter pilot go home on leave. So the chopper pilot responds by blowing up the latrine with Henry inside. (laughs) (laughs) So there's Henry standing in the middle of the destroyed latrine and his face is black with all the smoke and fire and with the toilet seat hanging around his neck. And all (laughs) he could say is boom. (laughs) Well, I guess you could say that Carl got a real jolt out of his visit to the restroom that day. Let's put it this way. His habit didn't happen anymore. (laughs) I bet. (laughs) So Matt got the message across. (laughs) We sat down with Robbie Riser during the off season. And during that conversation, he gave his version of how Matt came to drive for Riser Enterprises. So Matt Kenseth gets in the car at Nashville. Let's go back and talk about how Matt Kenseth got in the car. Well, I think this is a how did that story. come about? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, when we had the problem on Saturday night, we went back to the motel and we all went out to eat and the whole team was eating and we were talking about what we we're going to do and how we we're going to do this. And, and we needed to find a driver and everybody kind of put some names out there and, and Kathy Virtue put some, some names out there and we were sitting at the table and I said to my dad, um, you know, a lot of the names that have been brought out, people have done this already. And we're trying to build this team to go win races and 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 become a force down here. We we gotta look for somebody that's gonna be able to take us there. I said, I hate to say this, but if 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 we run the team and we hire Matt Kenseth to drive the car, I think Matt can do it. And my dad was completely silent at the table. Completely <laughs> silent. And uh it, and, and everybody had a, had a conversation, and, and, and when supper was over, my dad came to me and said, Robbie, do you, you, really, you really feel that that's what you want to do? And I said, well, Dad, I really feel like I'd like to drive it myself, but that ain't the right thing for where our team is right now. Really? You know, our, our team would be best if we could team up and have somebody that we have complete confidence in and, and go race. And he says, well, I can't believe I'm saying this, but if that's what you want to do, then, then you go do that. You're gonna to have to get a hold of him and see if he'll he'll drive the car. And had and you ever talked to him no, about about no, one? No, 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 no. What's really funny is there was no grand master plan. No. For the so we got back. We we did all our stuff at Bristol, and we we came back uh, and got home. And on Sunday morning, I I was I was gonna to try to get a hold of Matt. So I call I call his house and I get a hold of his. I think at that time it was his mom and told him she told me he was racing in Rougemont, North Carolina in a late model race. So I called over to Rougemont to the track and left a message that I needed Matt to give me a call. And I gave my name and number and told him I'd like him to have me call as soon as he could. Well, it took a little while and all of a sudden Matt calls. He says, Robbie, what, what's, you know, 
what do you need, you know? Yeah. And uh, and we got talking, and, and and he's like, are you? I told him what I wanted to do, and he was sort of like, are you sure? I said, yes, this is what I want to do. And and at, and at that yeah. time, he had just accepted a ASA ride for Jerry Gunderman up in Wisconsin, and I think he might have ran, ran a race or two. I can't remember how it was. But I think he really... I think at that time he really wanted to do what we were doing and wanted to come try this. And um, this was an opportunity. And, I mean, he, him and his, his dad finished racing up at Rougemont, and they drove down that night. We we fit him in a car and made made the, made the deal. And and uh, he said he was going to go back and talk to Jerry about his ASA ride, and, and he would meet me at Nashville. That's how it all that's, – that's how it all started. So – you called him the week after Bristol, or you no, called, I called him? No, I called him the day the, the we raced on Bristol on Saturday. I called him on Sunday morning. Did you really? Yeah, because we had to race. We had to be at Nashville on Thursday. You know, going yeah. through tech. Oh yeah. So yeah. I had to get him fitted in the car. So he was at he was at Rougemont. So he came and sat in the car, and we fitted him up and got in the seat and everything the way he wanted it. And then we 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 got ready to go to Nashville. Now was this a one race deal or substitute no. deal? You no, knew this was, that this, this was going to be permanent, yeah. right? Yeah. Now was Tim hurt that bad, or was he just Tim was Tim was hurt hurt bad enough that he wasn't going to drive the car anymore. This is a part of Matt's story with Robbie that I did not know, and it might have played a factor in what went down. It might not have, but it is pretty interesting to consider. A week or two before Robbie called Matt come drive for him in the Bush Series, Matt said that he had dropped in unannounced to see Robbie and John at their shop. And then Robbie had also spotted for Matt in a late model race in Las Vegas. Now, Matt insisted that they never talked about working together permanently at that point, but I can't help but wonder if that didn't on some subconscious level put a bug in the back of Robbie's mind that, hey, our driver Tim Bender is hurt and we need a driver. Ding, ding, ding. What about Matt Kenseth? Well, you know he had to be thinking that, Rick. Come on. As close as those two got and the number of times they worked together, there had to be something going through Robbie's mind that Matt could be the man. If that random contact had not been made, would Matt still have been Robbie's first choice when he needed a driver? You have talked before about needing a job after college, and you were headed to law school. Yeah and just randomly passed the office for the Martinsville Bulletin and were like, hey, I need a job. Maybe I'll stop in. I can tell you, Rick, I went into the Bulletin offices really dressed up for an interview. I was wearing a T-shirt and jeans. Didn't expect to get much notice at all. Thought I might get thrown out of my ear. But I said to him, do you guys need a sports writer? And I just happened to be talking to the managing editor, and I didn't know it. And he said, yes, we do. Come on back here and let's talk. That started it all. Had you ever considered journalism before? Had you no. ever written before? Oh, yeah. I was the sports editor of the paper at Old Dominion University for okay. at least one semester. And I had written some things there, basketball mostly. But when I got to Martinsville and passed the Martinsville Bulletin office, well, the bell just went off. Because the job I was going to have up there otherwise was in a furniture factory. I am not too sure I wanted to work at a furniture factory. So I took a chance, and it paid off. That literally changed the course of your life. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, check this one out. Okay. My dad was in the army when I was born and I was actually six years old before I spent two consecutive birthdays in the same state. And the longest amount of time that we spent anywhere was in Japan. And while we were there, my mom and dad's best friends were a sergeant that my dad worked with and his wife, Mike and Judy Lane. Now that was in 1969, 1970, somewhere in there. And we lost touch with the lanes. They lived in North Carolina while we were in Nashville. But when I moved to North Carolina for good in 1992, more than 20 years after we had left Japan and more than 20 years after having basically no contact, I reconnected for a time with Mike and Judy and their three sons. It was Mike and Judy who introduced me to the friend who eventually set me and Jeannie up on a blind date. So (laughs) if my mom and dad don't become friends with Mike and Judy all those years ago in Japan, I do not wind up marrying Jeannie. That is just an incredible story, Rick. Don't think that I've not thought about that. It was not a coincidence. Well, Rick, I understand exactly what you're talking about when you say your father was in the Army and you lived in so many different places. From the time I was born until I was 13 years old, my dad was in the Army as well. And we lived everywhere from Staten Island to Puerto Rico to Kansas to Petersburg, Virginia, Seattle, Washington, Japan, like you, for three years. Finally, we got back from Japan, and my father retired at that time, and he was working in the North Virginia Beach area at that time. And that's pretty much what I call home now. So I understand what you went through. Another part of Matt's interview that I did want to touch on was when he talked about the importance of never becoming complacent, no matter how much success that you've had. And the reason why I wanted to mention it is because not becoming complacent is critical in absolutely every walk of life. I mean, if you rest on your laurels just like that, you're on a fast track to nowhere. You've basically won every award that there is to win in motorsports journalism. How did you stay motivated to keep producing good content for your readers? You know, Rick, it's great to win those awards. It lets you know that you're doing something right, that you are being noticed for your work. But for me, While I did appreciate all those awards, and do to this day, after I got them, I just said, okay, keep on doing what you're doing. I never changed the beat on how I covered races, how I wrote stories. I just went on being myself, the journalist, the way I knew how. I didn't really think about or dwell on those awards. Obviously, success can be a two-way street. You can become smug and ride the wave, so to speak. And you can also feel the stress of living up to that success. And Steve, by far, the most success that I've ever had with any of the books I've written was Go Flight on Mission Control. It actually sold out of its first printing before its actual release date. We actually had a little trouble finding enough books to do that first book signing. And then came the Mission Control documentary and We had more than 500 people in an IMAX theater at Space Center Houston for the premiere. The director of Johnson Space Center was there. Every surviving Apollo era flight director was there. Chris Kraft, who created Mission Control, was there. Doug Hurley, 
who went on to command the first SpaceX mission, was there along with his wife, who is also an astronaut. And that was obviously a big deal. But what was I going to do for an encore? I mean, I was just about to turn 50 that September. Was that the biggest thing that I was ever going to accomplish in my career? What was I going to do with the rest of my career? Those are logical questions, given the success you had. And that was, let me, let me say this, that was a tremendous success to do everything that you did with the space program, both the book and the documentary and the attention you got and the sales you had of the book. The, Rick, that's just monumental, monumental. So naturally, you know, you had some questions about where to go from there. I'm not sure, Rick, but I'd have probably had the same darn questions if I had achieved that kind of thing. All I can say is that less than a year after that premiere in Houston, the Same Vault podcast made its debut, and that is how I'm going to follow up on Go Flight and Mission Control, and I am very, very satisfied with that. 1998, second race of the season. We are at Rockingham. And Matt wins the first race of his Bush Series career. Matt won two Daytona 500s. He won a total of 39 cup races. But he said that that Bush Series win at Rockingham was by far the biggest of his career. And what I thought was so intriguing about Matt's interview was how closely it mirrored Robbie's. Even though we didn't do the interview with them together, they weren't in our studio at the same time, but they were pretty much in lockstep with each other on how they described that time. So again, here's what Robbie had to say about that win at Rockingham. So we headed to Rockingham, and uh, at that time, uh, the car was still painted in, in the red and blue colors, and um, we qualified 27th. Oh, boy, that's not good. All right, so we changed the whole car around. We worked on the car. Back then, you had a little more practice, so you could do things on the car and got the car working pretty good in the last practice and Matt was somewhat happy with it and we were changing a few things for the race and so we're starting 27th and we're getting ready to go out and my dad says to me uh Robbie what do you want to do what do you want to do with those Lyco sponsorship you want you want to try put the decals on the car shouldn't I I said well dad I don't know nobody else is talking to us about sponsorship let's put let's put Lycos on it on it and let's see what happens here so we put the Lyco stickers on right before we rolled it through tech. Even though you had no money. We had no money from them. Okay. Right. But we were trying yeah. to, you know, yeah. they, they had talked to us about maybe doing some more races, and we thought, well, okay. yeah, yeah. let's say a thank you for Daytona, and let's put that on and see what happens. Well, we start running this race, and we're running pretty good. We start working our way up in the top 10, and all of a sudden, 15 laps to go, we're running second, and we're running Stewart down. Stuart, Tony Stewart's leading. And... uh Five laps ago, they were running into each other, you know, back and forth, trying to trying to get the lead. And so we go down in the they go down in the four on the last lap, or down in the three on the last lap. And Matt shoves Tony up the racetrack, and Matt drives underneath him, and we win the race. And I mean, we're in Riser Enterprise uh, blue polos, black black jeans. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know the way we were pitting the car. I mean, we didn't have any extra people. There was nothing. We win this race. I mean, it's unbelievable. Oh, yeah. I, unbelievable. I mean, yeah. I, I get goose pimples just thinking about oh, that race yeah. because it was so exciting. I mean, yeah. I, if, if I look at one race in, 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 in everything that we did, that's the one race that, that changed the world because that changed our life for where it was going ahead. And uh, so we, we win that race. I remember Jimmy Fennick running out of the garage area and high-fiving all of us as we ran into victory lane. And that was in that victory lane on that little ramp, and you ran yeah. up there. And, and uh, it, was, it was really exciting. And then 
So now we so now we win the race. We get a lot of publicity. We get an opportunity to um, to go back to the bank, go back to the tire guy, go back to the engine guy, pay everybody a little bit of money. Now we're going to go to Vegas. Steve, one of the things I really enjoyed most about this interview with Matt was we had a set time that we could work with him because number one, the NASCAR technical Institute was about to close. (laughs) (laughs) And so we did our conversation on the record and then Steve, Matt and I sat there and talked for another, at least 20 to 30 minutes off the record, just catching up. Steve, he showed me pictures of his grandkids. (laughs) And I showed him pictures of Adam and Jesse and I told him about, you know, what my transition out of the sport was like. And he told me about some of the struggles that he had had and so on and so forth. It was just cool to sit there and catch up. Rick, that that interview that Matt gave you, when he first showed up at his studio, he might've thought, well, let's get this over with, you know, go in and just answer his questions and leave. That was not the case. He was very comfortable with you, as well as doing the podcast. And his answers were great. His response was great. But he grew to a point where, hey, I'm liking this. I think I'm going to talk to Rick a little bit more. And that's how you do it, Rick. That's how you do it. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's Racing Showplace. February 26th, 1998, issue of Winston Cup scene. Jeff Gordon started fourth in the GM Goodwrench Service Plus 400 at Rockingham. 50 laps later, he had dropped a tenth, and at one point, he was running as low as 31st. And Steve, this was in the heyday of Jeff Mm. Gordon, Ray Evernham, and Hendrick Motorsports. Right. Something you would never expect to see. So that was definitely an anomaly. So Jeff said in your race lead, at the start of the race, the car was just real, real loose. I couldn't run high, middle, or low. At that point, I couldn't really get it to come together. We had to tighten it up. We tried to make minor adjustments, but we just needed to do more. Ray Evernham, who was, of course, Jeff's crew chief, told me we would have to make major adjustments. I really didn't want to give up track position, but sometimes you have to give up a lot to gain a lot. And that is exactly what happened. Jeff came back to lead six times for a total of 73 laps, including the final 31. Jeff continued in your race lead. The second half of the race, I was running around the bottom, just trying to keep it on the bottom and drive it real easy. I never thought it would get to the point where it would run as well as it did at the end of the race. When it was over, I asked Ray, what did you do to the car? You know, Rick, this is a prime example of one thing I have said throughout my career. If you think the driver alone wins races, you are sadly mistaken. And here's the example. It took a lot of effort to change that car to the point where Jeff could drive it to victory. The credit for that goes to crewman crew chief, guys in the shop, whatever it took, change that car, they did. They made that car a winner. I've always said, the talent behind pit wall and in the shop is just as important as the talent behind the wheel. 
Jeff avoided disaster as he was racing Rusty Wallace for the lead on lap 365. Contact between Ernie Irvin and Steve Park triggered a multi-car crash in turn two, but Jeff was able to pick his way through it. And he said, on that last caution, Rusty and I were battling, and I knew that there were inside and outside lanes. I was trying to figure out where the car would work better. Going into turn one, I saw Ernie get loose and sideways, and I was ready to get through it but the guys in front of me were slamming on the brakes. I was afraid I would get hit from behind, so I just followed the guy ahead of me to get through it. Ask me who sat on the pole for this race. Who won the pole for this race? That would be Rick Mast. Who? Rick Mast. <laughs> are you Are you sure? Yep. <laughs> it was Rick Mast. Would I kid? About a thing like that. Rick Mass sat on the pole at Rockingham for the cup race in the spring of 1998. Hey, Rick, tell us about the cow. (laughs) (laughs) Moo. (laughs) (laughs) And what was kind of cool along with that, Kenny Wallace qualified second on the outside of the front row next to Rick and David Green started third. And that's a true of top three starters. I don't think anybody would have predicted for that day. I would have liked to have had money yeah. on that. Oh, if they started you? first, second, third. Yeah. I would like to have had money I, on that in Vegas. That's <laughs> a trifecta right there. <laughs> that was the second race of the 1998 Winston cup season. And Steve, do you remember who won the 1998 Daytona 500? Does that ring a bell? Let's say bells have gone off in my head repeatedly. Yes, it does <laughs> ring a bell. <laughs> it wasn't Neil Armstrong. I can put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Dale Earnhardt and crew chief Larry McReynolds won the 1998 Daytona 500, but just a week later, they were forced to take a provisional for this race. So Dale rode off pit road in 37th place and then struggled to a 17th place finish one lap down to Jeff. There was a feature in this issue about the Daytona 500 win being vindication for Dale and Larry Max working relationship, but that was pretty much their lone high point working together. Now that high point couldn't have gotten any bigger or higher, but unfortunately there were some pretty deep valleys on either side of that mountaintop. And here is Larry Mack talking about that relationship with Dale from episode 104. You know, there's a lot said about Dale and I didn't get along and there that's probably way away from the truth. We actually got along quite well, but we just couldn't connect with this race car. And I think our personalities were so different. As you probably know, observing me for all these years, I'm a little bit high-strung and up on the chip. <laughs> and you know Dale. He, he's, he's laid back when he's, he was in the middle of, of eight wide, you know. And, and that probably those, – those two personalities were probably not working in our favor. But, yeah, 97, outside of all the – ancillary things that I had to endure throughout my years as a crew chief with with Davey getting killed and Ernie getting hurt and toughest year I've ever had in my life. 1997? Yes. No kidding. Just, I go to the three car and we go winless. We go winless. How in the world you could put a monkey working with Dale Earnhardt. He could at least (laughs) win one freaking race and we can't even win a race. (laughs) But, and it was it got tough. I'm telling you, it got tough 
because I was starting to get accusations from fans about sabotaging Dale's career. I got accusations about Ford sending me over there to sabotage Chevrolet. You have no idea. I mean, I didn't dare leave that, that racetrack with a uniform top on. I left there in generic clothes. The irony is... And this was before social media. Oh, yeah. This, this was just <laughs> mail coming. And, oh, yeah. 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 The, the irony, by the end of 97, I thought I was going to have to hire a full-time bodyguard. Isn't it amazing? Seriously. Isn't it amazing? February 17th, it was, I think. You're a rock star. I could have run for president and got votes. <laughs> I could have absolutely got, got yeah, votes yeah, for, yeah. for the Republican nomination. But I, I do want to, because I want to make sure and tie this in. So, you know, finally, we're just running horrible. Just horrible. We won the Daytona 500. Hell, we went to Rockingham, had to use a provisional to start the race. And it didn't get any better. Um, I think we did go to Talladega and finish second, but it's Talladega. He's supposed to run good there with Dale. And finally, we were a dumpster fire. The 31 was a dumpster fire. And I think, I mean, there was, there was probably the straw that broke the camel's back. Again, I was not intimidated by Dale. I respected him, but I was not intimidated by him. Is we go to Richmond, the spring race, and we qualified probably somewhere around 35th or 36th out of the 40-something cars that's there. And I walk up in the, the hauler, this, again, 98, and after qualifying, Dale, what did it do? Oh, I don't know, just, didn't, just wasn't comfortable. And I slammed that door, and he had his little TV going, and I punched the off button. I said, look. I came here to help you win races. Yeah, I came here to win races, but I came here to help you. You've got to decide what you want to do with your career, and I'll figure out whether I want to ride along anymore or not. I cannot do this. Yeah, I walked out of that lounge, and I said, well, probably shouldn't have said that, but you know what? I meant it. I just working my guts out, driving myself nuts, kicking my dog when I go home, screaming at my wife. And I wanted to, he, he's got to figure it out. Here is a wee little tidbit that I had forgotten. Matt Kenseth had crashed at Rockingham the previous fall after contact with, drum roll please, Tony Stewart. <laughs> now, did that have anything to do with the last lap in this race at Rockingham? Probably not, but it does kind of make you go, hmm. And we heard Matt's version of that finish in this week's installment of our interview with him. But as you could imagine, Tony Stewart wasn't exactly thrilled with how things had turned out that day. Tony said in the race league, coming off that last corner on the last lap, I was coming off the same as I had the other 196 laps. Coming off that time, he got me in the left rear. That was the only way he could get by us. He got us loose to where I had to get out of the gas for a second, and that was enough for him to get by. I was on the gas as hard as I could go, and evidently, it wasn't hard enough for him. I wouldn't have taken him out. I would not have done that. Sure. <laughs> oh, did I say? I said that out loud, didn't I? Hey, there are corners going. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, Rick, I'll let you step in it. <laughs> I said it so you wouldn't have to. <laughs> 
Casey Atwood became the youngest driver in the history of the Bush series in this event. He was just 17 years old and a high school junior at the time. He qualified 15th and he finished 21st, the last car on the lead lap. Now, Rick, I'll tell you the honest truth. I did not know that Casey Atwood became the youngest driver in the history of the Bush series at that time. I really did not. You should have read my race lead. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We're moving right along. <laughs> Casey said it was a lot of fun. We had some handling problems all day. The car was real tight all day. The crew kept making it a little better and a little better. We just needed a little more time. It was a good learning experience for me. Hopefully we can go to the next track and do better. This issue was released the week going into Las Vegas Motor Speedway's first Winston Cup race weekend, and there was a full advertising section about that big event, plus a feature. And in this feature, Mark Martin, who went on to win that inaugural Winston Cup event at Las Vegas, said, this track is a lot like driving Michigan and California. I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about coming to race in Vegas, but this is what we need to be doing. This is the kind of facility that we need to be looking into for the next generation. This is it, where we need to be. Very prophetic words from Mark for our sponsor. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much, Mark. (laughs) Hi, I'm Robbie Reiser. Hey, I'm Matt Kenseth, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Hello, Scene Vault fans. This is Brian from Speedway Screens, and if you're enough of a NASCAR historian to be listening to this podcast, there's a good chance a piece of the past you've been on the hunt for is in my shop. I'm constantly on the hunt for apparel and collectibles from all genres and eras of motorsports. So whether it be cup cars, dirt modifieds, dragsters, or monster trucks, I've probably got something for you. Check out my inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com and be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens for the newest items as soon as they drop and for a peek at what I keep for my own collection. As a special thank you to listeners of this show, just enter scene at checkout for 10% off. Speedwaytsj.etsy.com. That's speedwaytsj.etsy.com. This podcast has been brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. We got some questions for our Q&A segment that we're going to be doing. But after Ricky Boyd Jr. came out of the gate with this one, I'm not sure I want to continue with this new endeavor. (laughs) (laughs) You asked for it, Rick. You asked for it. Ricky actually had a couple of questions for me and one for you. So here goes nothing. Okay. Rick. Why did you leave scene to go to work for NASCAR? Did you ever try to go back to work for scene when you were let go? The question for you is what is your best Davy Allison story? So Ricky is going straight to the center of my soul, to the deepest part of my angst. And he throws you a softball question. <laughs> oh, come on, Rick. You can deal with it. <laughs> okay. All right. So for Ricky's questions to me. Very long story short, Roush Racing issued a press release denying rumors that Stanton Barrett was about to lose his job. Then three days later, Stanton Barrett was out the door. 
And I wrote a column calling out the just absolute silliness of that release. And then Roush Racing President Jeff Smith wrote a letter to the editor calling me out. And somebody on the scene staff wrote a headline over Mr. Smith's letter that said something to the effect of writer overstep bounds of fair commentary. It was not me before you get started here. It was not me. If it was you, I'm going to need to see you in the parking lot after this episode's <laughs> over. <laughs> no, I did not overstep the bounds of fair commentary. I'd write the same column today in similar circumstances. And what Jeff Smith said was fair game. I had my say. He had his. But what truly did get me sideways was that headline. Writer overstep bounds of fair commentary. Steve, nobody on the staff ever talked to me to get my side of the story, never asked what I knew about the story or how I reported it, but there it was. You should have been spoken to, Rick. You should have been asked about it before that headline went up there. And Steve, I'm going to be honest with you. I had already been cooking for a while, and I've said it here on the show before that the day that Adam Petty lost his life really changed the course of my career. I went from happy-go-lucky, oh, it's so cool that I get to do this job, to it becoming a job. And then on top of Adam, there was Kenny, and then there was Tony, and then, of course, there was Dale and Blaze and all the controversy that came along with that. Those two years were not fun. Yeah, they weren't fun for anybody, Rick, not at all. In all honesty, I actually saw that headline driving down the interstate at about 75 miles an hour. I, Yeah, I was flipping through the newspaper, driving the company car down Interstate 77, going to Daytona. Let's just say that when I saw that headline, I had myself a full-fledged nutty. <laughs> <laughs> and I went straight to the track at Daytona, and I talked to Steve O'Donnell, who got me up with Jim Hunter, who had approached me a handful of times about the job with NASCAR. What really kind of tilted the balance? I did not want to leave scene, to be honest with you. And so when they asked me what I wanted, I came up with a figure that I thought for sure that they would never match in a million years. And after blinking a couple of times, <laughs> Jim Hunter said, yeah, we can do that. That lacked a thousand dollars of Dublin what I was making it say. I can just imagine, Rick. So I took the job and 11 months to the day after I walked in the front door of the R&D Center Concord for my first day on the job, I walked out the back door without a job. Well, Rick, I must say, I wanted you to take that job because you had done so much work on the Bush series. You'd written a book about the Bush series. You were the man for that job, in my opinion. And that's why when you left, yeah, we hated to lose you. But I understood completely. I thought you were definitely in the better deal all the way around. And to answer the second part of Ricky's question, there wasn't any job to be had at scene once I left. Bob Pockris took my place when I left scene. And Jesus <laughs> isn't going to unseat Bob from a job in NASCAR. <laughs> no, not at all. And Bob is still at it. <laughs> And I did do freelance pieces for scene on Sam Ard's dementia diagnosis and on Kevin Grubb after his comeback from a suspension and also did weekly look back packages for scene's 30th anniversary season. And Steve, honestly and truly stepping away from the sport yeah, was very good for me. It was good for my relationship with Janie. It was very good for my 
relationship with my boys. A little more than a week after I was let go, the boys had their first three-year-old soccer practice, and I was able to go to that. I know that had to be a good feeling for you, Rick. When you're watching your boys playing soccer, I bet you thought to yourself, you know what, if I was still in that job, I couldn't be here today. This is a lot more rewarding. And two or three years later, after NASCAR cut me loose, I had the opportunity to go back to the track, and I was doing some work for TNT on their NASCAR broadcasts as their studio researcher. And I saw Jim Hunter, who had both hired me and fired me. (laughs) (laughs) I saw him. It was one of those situations where we couldn't avoid each other, but I saw him. And my first response was, and I did do it, I thanked him. Really? And I told him, I said, Jim, you gave me three and a half years with my family that I never would have taken for myself. And I can't tell you how good that has been for me. Well done, Rick. Well done. Now that I've bared my soul, you had better have a really good story about Davey Allison. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how good people think it is. I've got a lot of them. Some of them I can't tell. (laughs) But Okay. Those are the ones you got to tell. Okay. (laughs) Well. Get me off the hook a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Let me think about it. This one is real quick. It was the Talladega. Race is over. It was uh, hot as the Dickens. And I forgot exactly what Davey had done that day, but I was down in the pits and I knew I had to talk to him. So I followed him as close as I could in the back of his hauler. And he went up to the upper end of the hauler and closed the door. I thought, well, I'm not going to be able to talk to him. Well, by this time, that hauler was full of people. Males and females. So I knocked on the door, and Davey said, who is it? I said, Steve Wood, I need to talk to you. And he opened the door real quick, and he stood there in nothing but his skippies. (laughs) (laughs) In front of this crowd, mixed crowd, in the holler. He took one look at that crowd, his eyes widened, and he slammed the door shut. And he said to the door, you're going to have to talk to me this way if you want any answers. (laughs) And that's what I did. Interviewed him through the door. (laughs) I was as wide as he was. (laughs) Okay. All right. So, listeners, there you have it. Our first Q&A session from our listeners. Uh, I don't know how much we need to do this in the future, but, hey, I'm game if you are. (laughs) If you have any questions for me and or Steve, you can email them to me at rick at the I think I'm looking forward to hearing from you. <laughs> You're doing so at your own peril, Rick. 